Okay, let's get rolling. Oh, uh, yes, kids, you're dismissed. So let's get, get them out. I'll, I'll wait. Did you push the button? Oh, we're going. Okay, well, here we are. April 7th, 2013, lecture discussion number 105 on the Book of Romans. And before I start um, um, lecture number 105, I'm getting a lot of mail um, from people who want me to finish my Noah and and Adam positions, uh, specifically Benjamin from Chicago and Sharon from Texas. Uh, uh, Sharon has written me something that's just really funny, and I have to bring it sometime and read it, as she always does. Let me just say this for all of you folks, and there's quite a few besides them, but uh, they're the ones I remembered as I was writing it uh, when uh, Supper Dave reminded me of it today before the service. Noah is in a tent um, and he's in a sleeping state, and of course we have the deep sleep, if not the death of Adam. Out of Adam's deep sleep uh, came the building of his wife, um, out of the blood and the flesh, if you will. So I have Noah also in a deep sleep, so it would seem obvious to me if the pattern follows. Both of them had floods, both of them named animals. All of this connection between Noah and Adam, if you'd missed that lecture, that's a few weeks back. But in any event, if I got blood... And flesh with Adam, do I have blood and flesh also with Noah? So if I do, what is that blood? What is that flesh? What's the purpose of it? Well, with Adam, it was to build a human being, wasn't it? So what is happening in this tent that is so extraordinary it causes, causes the curse of Canaan? And Noah, by the way, is declared to be something by God. It's an extraordinary thing. He is called uncontaminated, or your Bible might say righteous. But he is uncontaminated. The word is tamin, from which we get contamination. Noah is declared to be without contamination by God. That was not missed by the people around him or the angelic host, for that matter. So I also have the covering of Adam. I'm sorry, the covering of, of Noah after he has been uncovered, right? I have the covering of Adam after he has been uncovered. So this relationship that Noah and Adam have is extraordinary, and that's how you figure out what's going on in that tent. As you know, I have a, a position on Sodom and a position on Judges 19, 20, 21, um, and you'll see where I'm going uh, with here eventually. But I go look up all of the... All of the uncoverings and the coverings. I look up all the wives. Uh, I asked uh, Dave, Supper Dave here this, before we started. We assume that Noah's wife was not in the tent. Why would we assume that? He's asleep in the tent. Now, granted, he's drunk. But did he drink the wine alone or did he and his wife drink the wine? Who else is in the tent? Is anybody else in the tent? Now, Noah knew immediately that whatever it was that Ham did, and I can make the case, I think, strongly, that Ham and Canaan were involved in this. Whatever they did, they made it obvious to Noah that uh, it had been done to him. And he comes out and curses the grandson, which is an extraordinary thing. But that's enough, Benjamin and Sharon. You can... You can get my view, and, and when you mix in Leviticus 18, you can uh, you can figure out, I think, where I'm headed. And if you don't, um, uh, it's okay. I'm, I'll be doing it pretty soon. By soon, I mean um, in the next month or so. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, also, uh, Supper Dave informed me that on our website, there's a grievous error. It says something along the line that uh, Pastor Steve needs Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, for energy, and then uh, medicinally, he needs diet Pepsi. Oh, I know. 
I know it's blasphemous heresy. It's a Jane almost spit up in the front row. It's just unbelievable that they whoever did that website has no idea who I am. They obviously have never met me, and I've never met them, and they've not attended a single lecture of mine within the last 15 or 17 years or so that I've been doing this in front of people than not high school students. At any event, that has to be fixed. Please disregard it, and I don't want to offend the Coca-Cola company of from whom I expect some kind of compensation. Okay, on April 7, 2013, lecture discussion number 105 on the book of Romans. And before we return to our current subject, which as you can see on the board there, is the continuity of germplasm and the implications of that continuity. Uh, really quick, as an aside to the aside, some of you have noticed that the continuity of germplasm fits very, very nicely with the continuity of the soul. Uh, two things that I have done. Both of these continuity proofs I have been wrestling with in front of you now for quite some time, and that is not an accident. Both have elements that intersect with one another. It's important that you know it. Uh, both are proofs of continuing. And that's something that the Bible is emphatic about. The Bible makes sure that you know there is a continuing. There is uh, uh, a continuing, an immortality element and both of these uh, uh, proofs, continuity of germplasm and the proper, uh, continuity of the soul, uh, have great implication. Um, implications. The continuity of the soul proves or impacts free will in existence. And you cannot separate free will from existence. They are tied uh, so they cannot be separated. The continuity of germplasm uh, proves the, that Adam was a literal human being. And that therefore Eve or the woman was a literal human being. And therefore there was a literal person that is Satan. And it also germplasm, uh, continuity germplasm also uh, um, gives us the cause of biological, physical death by decay, if you will. Versus death by what? Accident, murder, whatever the case may be. But physical decay death. And once you've grasped the truth of continuing of, of, of the continuing of your mind after the death of the physical body, uh, then free will and existence, self-identity, all begin to fit into an inseparable unity because they all depend on each other. And you cannot separate them out. None can be apart from the other. And you won't waver anymore on those issues. Of, well, you will all waver, but you will waver less. You will wobble less. You will be less of a weevil. And things will be fine. You'll just you'll wobble a little bit and, and then straighten right back out again. Think motorcycle going through wet, wet road. Always hit the gas, right? Don't back off. Down you'll go. Anyway, free will requires existence, which requires self-identity, which requires that the soul continue into immortality. Okay? That happens once you put that together, as I said, less weebling. And the reverse is likewise true. You could say that backwards. Um, immortal, immortal continuity of the soul requires self-identity. That requires existence or immortal existence, if you will. And immortal existence requires free will. And then you can take the continuity of germplasm, and, and that proves the existence of a literal Adam, as I said, just thus the existence of a literal Eve, both of which prove the existence of a literal Satan, and they all did literally exactly what was said. Germplasm will prove that. 
And we get a literal curse out of that now. And we get two trees out of that. And the two trees prove what? Free will. And free will proves existence. And existence proves self-identity. Self-identity proves continuity of the soul. So you see how they feather together. They're backwards and forwards the same. Let me repeat it. The continuity of germplasm proves the existence of, of a literal Adam, the existence of a literal Eve, the existence of a literal Satan, of a literal curse, of a literal two trees. The two trees proves free will, and the free will proves existence, immortal existence, and immortal existence proves self-identity, and in self-identity proves the continuity of the soul. So look at it. One is a physical approach to immortality. The other one is a philosophical or a mental approach to uh, immortality. But more of that in a few minutes, if by a few minutes we mean a half hour. Anyone seen Christopher yet? No. Could be trouble. For those of you on the internet, I forgot something. Christopher is bringing it. I need it, or the lecture will make less sense than normal. So now we're stalling. That's too bad. As you can imagine, my mail is beginning to reflect the interest that is out there on the subjects that we've been doing. Uh, clearly, there are many, many people uh, who have questions and thoughts and concerns, and uh, my mailbox is just getting pounded. Um, it's really extraordinary, and it's very exciting, and I'm thrilled to get every single letter. I wish I could read every one of them. Uh, most of them are hilarious. Uh, we definitely have... Uh, tied into a, a peculiar group of people. Uh, thus the question, were you weird before you came to Cliffside or did Cliffside make you weird has now been established because of this wide sample. These people are all weird. Every one of them. They're hilariously weird, just like us. And so uh, we didn't know them. So that tells us how this is, doesn't it? And so apply that to yourself in case you think I don't do applicational sermons. You have to be weird. We've now proved it. And I'm going to take some time today to address the, some representative questions, the ones that are most representative, the ones that most often repeat, uh, that come through over and over and over again, and the ones that seem to cause the most confusion and sometimes the most despair, because people attack with certain things. They attack Christians with certain arguments, as you know, and it causes insecurity. Uh, again, to use the word of the day, weebling. And they appear to be difficult, these attacks, uh, uh, but as always, they are revealed to be tiny, whimpering, little, bitty, cute kittens. They are not roaring lions or devouring lions. They're very easy to take them apart or to pull the costume off of them and you see what they really are. And so, I have a letter that I'm going to read. And here comes Chris now, running with the baby putting the baby in danger in order to bring this letter to me. We're going to start with a letter from uh, uh, from Mark from Texas, uh, who has an exchange with Joseph Farrar. And Mark sent it to me to see what I thought. Now, many of you know who Joseph Farrar is. Uh, Joseph Farrar is the CEO of WorldNet Daily, and he's a renowned uh, columnist. And Mark from Texas, and he have these exchanges. And... Um, Mark from Texas took issue with a column of Mr. Farrar's. And here it comes now, the hero of the church for the day. Yay! Thank you, sir. Where did I leave it? 
Okay. Uh, Mr. Farrar had a couple of columns that Mark from Texas took issue with. Um, uh, one of them was entitled, uh, Celebrating Jesus' Condescension. And the other one was entitled, uh, Jesus Didn't Know Everything. Uh, titles to, to which I immediately respond without reading the columns. I mean, as soon as I see the title, chances are I'm not going to read the column. Maybe. Um, I respond to it. If Jesus is not always omniscient, then there is no salvation. There is no condensation. He did not condescend in the sense that he did not become less. He descended, not condescended. That's uh, Proverbs 30, verse 4, John 3, 13. The full deity of Christ, let me say it a different way. The full deity of Christ, the omniscience, the omnipresence, and the omnipotence is essential for salvation. If any part of it is gone, there is no salvation. End of story. So when you start uh, something Jesus didn't know everything, or celebrating the fact that Jesus somehow lessened his godhood, then uh, we have a problem. And I'm aware that my statement, not all of us, we're doomed. I'm aware that my statement leaps over a lot of information that all of you know. A lot of people don't know, uh, don't know how to get to what I just said. There's an exhaustive anatomy to it, a series of steps, building blocks upon building blocks, if you will, that leads to that statement. Let me repeat the statement. If Jesus is not always omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, then there is no salvation. Getting there is not that difficult, but it, it, you, you all need, all of us need to get there. Obviously, Mr. Farrar has yet to make the full journey, and I trust he will. But I'm getting ahead of myself again, or still. Probably should read the letter now, so let's do that. Glory. Now, this is from uh, Mark from Texas. Glory, please pass the following on to Pastor Steve. I'd be interested to see if he has a comment. I'm pretty sure he will. I have heard Pastor Steve comment a number of times about how he likes to listen to Dennis Prager's radio show. I do. I find Dennis Prager uh, a, a man of uh, significant insight. Theologically struggles. Bless his heart. But um, I appreciate what he thinks a lot. I, I want to know what highly intelligent Jewish men are thinking. I, I listen to them because uh, sooner or later they're going to figure it out. And I want to hear that. Um, I follow, going back to Mark, I follow Joseph Farrar's column on WorldNet Daily, also known as WND in a similar way. In fact, Dennis Prager writes a weekly column for WND, which, of which Joseph Farrar is CEO. Mr. Prager is a somewhat secular Jewish man, and Joseph Farrar is an evangelical Arab-American Barnegan Christian descended from Lebanese parents. I am usually pretty much aligned with Joseph Farrar's position, but he wrote a column last Christmas Eve that bothered me. A link is here. In that column, uh, Farrar takes a position similar to Fruchtenbaum's, that the infant Yeshua, or Jesus, emptied himself of godhood, which he then presumably had to learn back from intimate relation with the Father while he was growing up. Holy mackerel, honey child. I don't think there's a single word in that sentence that's correct, but we'll get to that in a minute. This isn't the first time that Mr. Farrar has written on this theme. He has done so on various Christmas Eves in the past. Then five days ago, Mr. Farrar wrote the, call, uh, the following column that, pretty, that I pretty much agreed with. 
This column declares Christ's omniscience and omnipresence, although it omitted omnipotence. Oops. Because you can't. Not logically, not intellectually. So I queried Mr. Farrar on the seeming disparity between the two columns. The exchange below is what I've gotten so far. Read it from the bottom up for a chronological discussion. I haven't received a reply to my last comments yet, but I would be very interested in Pastor Steve's position should this discussion with Mr. Farrar go further. I know Pastor Steve now gets a lot of email from the World Wide Web of folks who listen on the Internet and that his time is limited, but I would really be interested in what he thinks about the location of God's omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience with regard to the pre-adult Jesus. Was it fully in him or not? Of course, I know Pastor Steve's position already. He is never not God. That's true. That's my position. But I would like to hear the argument for the case as I want to be better prepared to defend my own position in the future. Love to you guys and keep up the good work at Cliffside that is now available to the world if they can just find it. And then he, he says that uh, he passes on thumb drives of the Roman series because he's afraid to pass on the Genesis series first. He wants to kind of get them used to me in a more... Because my Genesis series, as you know, I never thought any of that would ever go on the Internet, and he is correct. I had a tendency to just be a lot more lackadaisical in those days, and I've adjusted because of the uh, the fact that there's so many of them and so few of us. Okay, that's his wonderful letter. Now, suffice to say, Mark from Texas did an outstanding job. If you want to read it, you should. It's available here. He did an outstanding job of explaining the continuity of germplasm to Mr. Farrar. And Mark from Texas needs little help from me, if any. It's probably the other way around. But this issue or issues is fairly common. And men like Mr. Farrar, who are usually extraordinary scholars, are often felled by it. They think it's a roaring lion and they don't know what to do and they panic. And they end up with this. Uh, let me read it back to you. Uh, Jesus emptied himself of his godhood, which he then presumably had to learn back from an intimate relationship with the Father while he was growing up. I, I really, I'm glad, I'm glad you're laughing, but it, they, that's what they do. They just panic. So I thought it'd be a good idea to ask some questions about the question, and that is how, as you know, you, you drop what seems to be a giant tree. Uh, you ask questions about it, and and. And we're going to endeavor to ask some simple little questions to see if the tree is a tree. It's not a tree. It's not even a blade of grass. But we'll, we'll do our best here. And I wanted you to, I wanted to repeat that position. Similar to Mr. Mr. Farrar takes a position similar to Mr. Fruchtenbaum. Wow. I hope that's not the case. I haven't talked to Dr. Fruchtenbaum in a long time, but I, I would hope that's not the case. That the infant Jesus emptied himself of his Godhood. Let me make sure that you hear that. Jesus Christ emptied himself of his Godhood, which he, a Godhood, which he presumably had to learn back while he was growing up. So, this is sadly a very common position, like I said, likely the most common. People want this position, I don't know why. It's preached everywhere all over the country, church after church after church. Men go to school to learn this nonsense. Get your money back. Run before they're out of money. And it seems that no one who, is ever, who ever has this view 
even considers the definition of godhood or the implications of the emptying, emptying process. Anyway, let's just cover it in a way I would cover it. Jesus Christ lost his memory of his godhood. Is that your position? He was God. He became the infant Jesus, and he didn't know. So what do we call that? Amnesia. That's your position. It's the kenosis position. And the kenosis position is a misunderstanding of Philippians 2.7. He doesn't take off his godhood. He takes off his robe. Isaiah 6. He doesn't lay aside his godhood. He lays aside his robe. There's a huge difference between his robe and his godhood. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 6. See, they never read Isaiah 6 with Philippians 2, 7. If they did, life would be easier for them. They wouldn't have to spout this stuff. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw, this is Isaiah talking, saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, who is he seeing? It's a physical manifestation of the invisible God. Who is he seeing? This is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, if you will, Christology. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and two he covered his face. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he goes on to describe what he saw. He sees Jesus Christ on the throne, in his robe, in this incredible, massive robe that filled the temple. How big do you think the temple is? It's a big place, and that robe's all over it. Go to Philippians 2.7 really fast. I don't know if I have time. If you do, you'll see that it says that he set aside his glory. Well, that's Isaiah 6. Always read Isaiah 6, Philippians 2, 7, side by side. And now ask, why? Why did he remove his robe? Why did he take his robe off? What is the purpose of the robe? What does it signify? First clue, it does not signify his godhood. Because why? He can't take off his godhood. So that eliminates it immediately. What did he set aside? It can't be his godhood. What would happen, let's keep going to the inverse. What would happen if he kept his robe on? Why did he take the robe off? Because he descended. Why did he descend? It's his plan of salvation. Walk amongst us. So what if he left his robe on while he walked amongst us? Clearly, he took it off. Because this is the earthly ministry. He took the robe off. Whatever the robe signifies, you start figuring that out. He took it off during his earthly ministry. Now, what what in the New Testament scripture is the fulfillment of this taking the robe off? Are you with me? What? What did he do that... that fulfills the taking of the robe off. I'm going to say to you, this is the infancy, the childhood, and the humanity, if you will, or the manhood 
all of it is humanity, the taking off the robe is signified by the infancy, the childhood, and the manhood, or the totality of the humanity of Christ. That's what's signified. He took it off, and he hid himself when he added humanity inside of humanity. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going too fast. I want one of those buttons that go beep, beep, beep. So this is where I would do where we could back up now. Got to hurry. Usually I write about 4,500 words. Today I wrote over 6,000. That really makes me just freak out when I count them, too. If you'd have told me that for 20 years of my life I'd be writing a term paper every Saturday that would take me as much time as it does, 11 or 12 hours, just to write it, and then I have the time to put the outline together and then read the material... Uh, if you told me that that would be my life, I would have fallen to the ground in despair. And here I am. Many otherwise brilliant Bible scholars collapse into kenosis theory because they cannot understand Hebrews 5, 5 through 5, 11. I've covered it thousands of times. What it is, is, is Hebrews 5, 5 through 5, 11 is high priest sacrificial system context, something that's always missed. Hebrews 5, 5 begins with, begins the passage, this section of the Bible with high priest. And Hebrews 5, 10 ends with high priest. There's high priest, high priest handles 5, 5 to 5, 10. What it's about is the high priest sacrificial system. It's sacrificial system language. So when you read 5, 5 to 5, 10 in Hebrews, know that what's being talked about is the sacrificial system, and they're using the language of the sacrificial system, so you have to have the correct understanding of the language. Do not impose non-sacrificial system language meaning on sacrificial language meaning. Does that mean anything to you? Glad somebody laughed. But most everybody does that, unfortunately, with Hebrews 5, 5 to 5, 10. They, they put their own little English word meanings to it, and they take out the fact that it is encapsulated by high priest and high priest. And 5.11 actually says this. You won't understand this because you're stupid. It's what it says. Look it up. And people... They don't even notice that. And they go and they read it and they run around saying, Christ had to relearn to be God. Ah! And they never read this part. You won't get it. You're stupid. And if there's ever a verse in the Bible that is correct, that one is stunning. That's proof that God wrote it. You don't have to go anywhere else. Anywhere. Anyway, that's where this nonsense about Jesus Christ having to relearn that he's God comes from the mangling and the misunderstanding of Hebrews 5. Uh, let's go back and ask some more. Just think about this for a moment. As I said, God has amnesia. That's your view. He doesn't know that he's God. What are the obvious questions now? How long? How long is God unaware that he's actually God? What are the implications of God being unaware? What else is he un- He doesn't know who he is. What else does he not know? Because if he doesn't know who he is, he doesn't know lots of stuff. If he doesn't know things, what's the implications? What's the consequences of Jesus Christ not knowing 
things. And certainly not knowing that he's God. How long did he not know? How long did it take him to relearn that he was God? And was there a period of time where he argued with himself? Because ultimately, he has to teach himself that he's, he's God, right? It's the triunity of God. So God has to teach God that he's God. How did this get, how did this get into church? Why didn't anybody raise, whoa, raise, hey, I have a question. Did he argue with himself? You're God. No, I don't think so. I don't remember I'm God. And by the way, who are you? Well, I'm you. My goodness, it's, it's just, I don't know how to deal with it sometimes. If I concede the indefensible premise here, and, and I hope I've exposed my disdain for this ridiculous thinking, today is a ranting idiot day, I know. But if I concede, obviously, if I concede this premise, then Jesus Christ had a period of time, because they say it's so, where he was not omniscient. And again, what is said when you say this? What are you really saying? And since omniscience requires omnipresence, you cannot know everything without being everywhere. Think that through. And in order to be everywhere, you have to have the power to be everywhere. So omniscience requires omnipotence, and omnipresence requires omniscience. They all require each other. And now you're saying that there's a period of time that Jesus Christ had none of it. He had not, neither omniscience, omnipresence, or omnipotence. Because if he doesn't have one, he doesn't have the other two. All of them must be there together in order for any of them to be there. And again, how long? Years, they'll tell you. This went on for years. So they say this. They say this process of relearning is necessary. Because he forgot. Teaching. Now, there's other positions. The Catholic Church has a position that Mary retaught him. Okay, why not? I mean, couldn't have learned it from the Anchorage Public School System. Oh, sorry, let that go. Let that go. A process of relearning is necessary if you have the view that he forgot or doesn't know he's God, and that's your view, really. Really, that's what they'll tell you. That's it. So, can God relearn? Learning is not compatible. It's a contradiction to omniscience. Yes. Go ahead. Well, are you ever correct about that? I hope no one heard. Because that's, here we go, right here. He's absolutely correct. He's immediately put Christ Subject to time with that view. If you have that view, Christ is subject to time. You're in big trouble even more so. We'll get to that in a minute. Congratulations. How is it possible to regain omniscience over time? Because that's what we're talking about. A learning process that takes time. That makes an infinite entity, as Steve just got ahead of me and said, an infinite entity, omniscience, or I should call him Boris, they won't know who he is. That makes an infinite entity, omniscience, subject to a created entity, which is time. I can learn omniscience, because I have to relearn I'm God. So I've got to relearn omniscience. And I can do it in a period of time. I'm going to have to have time to do it. got to be taught. And omniscience 
is outside of time by its very definition. Let's put it this way. There isn't enough time to learn omniscience. Does that make sense? Omniscience uh, cannot be relearned. It's impossible. One cannot grow into infinity. In your laugh. But that's obvious, isn't it? It should be simple. And you're right to laugh. This should be mocked out of the church. But it is so entrenched and it's preached all the time. And the little Christians sit in their little pews and they buy it and laugh it up like, like, what's the word I want? Morons. Sorry. Remember, it's ranting idiot day. But all of this growing into the infinity and regaining omniscience over time causes the most obvious of the obvious conclusions. Godhood equals infinity. See? Godhood equals infinity. You cannot, did I spell infinity? Infinity, yes I did. Godhood equals infinity. It is impossible to empty oneself of infinity. How big is infinity? You've got to bail it out. You have to get rid of it. Imagine infinity, and you have uh, a ladle, and you're going to empty infinity, or a bucket. Okay? It is impossible to empty oneself of infinity. It is impossible to empty oneself of godhood. It is impossible to empty oneself of omniscience or omnipresence or omnipotence. It's impossible, as they are characteristics of infinity. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence are characteristics of infinity. God cannot be anything but God. He is always omniscience, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Infinity, by uh, infinite God, by definition, will always be infinite God by the definition of infinity. No, that sounds like I'm repeating myself, which I am. And God must be infinite in order to be God. Omniscience is required to be God. You work that way. You cannot have a God that is not omniscient. Omniscience requires that you go, you, if you had know everything, you have to be everywhere. And if you have to be everywhere, you need the power to be everywhere. So there those three are together, and you must be infinite to have those three because they are infinite. So how illogical to say that Jesus Christ emptied himself of his infinity. What? How long would it take to empty himself of his infinity? How stupid is this? But they insist that it is so. It's a big, oh my goodness. This is where you just go, oh, just groan. Let's take a deep breath and continue with their premise here. They say that Jesus Christ rid himself of his infinity over a period of time. And then over another period of time, we learned that he was actually, in fact, creator God. Do I have to read it again? You check in your head. Let me read it again. Uh, Farrar takes a position similar to Fruchtenbaum's that the infant Yeshua emptied himself of godhood, which he then presumably had to learn back. And that is an accurate depiction of what they teach you. How can anyone say that with a straight face? When I first came across it, I said, oh, this is a joke. This has got to be a way for uh, 
to steal money from gullible Christians, and I think that's true. But uh, it also passes for scholarship and deep thinking and learning. I, ho- I hope you already see how hopeless this view is when light shined on it. We would all be still waiting for Christ to empty himself. Because what does it You can't. There's not enough time. Time is subject to infinity. It's not the other way around. And obviously, it just disintegrates this view right there. We would never get to the part where he learns, relearns he's God. We would never, there's not enough time. We need an infinite amount of time to get rid of an infinite amount. Well, we couldn't to cancel each other out. We'd have to have something that is greater than infinity in order to get rid of it. Infinity is not subject to time. Omniscience cannot be either emptied or refilled. You can't relearn omniscience. It's infinite. You can't empty it. It's infinite. One cannot be God and then learn to be God. What I call the re-become God position. They don't like me. I ask, by the way, all the time, okay, I've got to re-become God. How many lessons a day do I got to have? God is going to teach God to be to rebecome. God has amnesia, so He needs God to bring Him in, sit Him down. We got to have a classroom. I got to teach you to be God again. How long does that take? What's the lessons? How many steps? And that is the key. How many steps to learn infinity? Infinite steps. One cannot grow into God. This is where we all say silly rabbit. One is God or not God. Duh. Jesus Christ is always God, never not God. Duh. It can't be any other way, which raises more questions. Why do so many wish for it to be otherwise? They love this stuff. They love it. They want it to be true. Poor Christ, he's such a fragile little baby. Herod almost killed him. Ah. You saw the movie, right? It's all over television. Oh, he barely made it through that crucifixion. In fact, I got an email from one person that said, i got to run back to TV to see if Christ actually makes it to the crucifixion. It's going to be close. And I know they got it from me, and I'm really proud of them. It was very funny. But why do they love this? What is the origin of this and the motive of this thinking? Who would, who wants a God that can't even remember he's God for a couple of 30 years? People want that. They love it. Yeah. They want a human God. It's exactly right. They want a flawed God. They want a dumb God. They want a failing God. They want somebody just like them to be God. Let me give you a newsflash. He is God. We're not. He is not like us. His ways are not our ways. He's God. We're not God. Don't do this anymore. Stop it. It might make you cry. You might give money. But it isn't right. It certainly isn't true. It's insulting. It's disrespectful. It's indefensible. Yes, blasphemy. Thank you. Who would want... By the way, who would want to think this, but who would want people to think this? Who would want people to think that there was a period of time when Jesus Christ was not an acceptable sacrifice for sin? Because if he doesn't know he's God, then he's not omniscient. If he's not omniscient, then he's not an acceptable sacrifice. Does that make sense? 
You'll get there. I wrote, huh? How do I get there? Well, to be an acceptable sacrifice, his blood has got to be life blood. It has to be sinless, perfect blood. Life blood. Who can have life blood? Only God can have it now. Only God has it now. There's no other source for life blood but God himself. And only God could have it right now, and only God could have enough of it. It's not, it's not enough just to have it. Adam had it. Eve had it. They had life blood, and they forfeited it and have now death blood. Or they had or immortality, and they took on mortality. You also have them say this all the time. Christ had mortality. No, Christ did not have mortality. He was not subject to death. He proved it. You can't kill me. I have to kill myself. In the Chronister translation, it says, you can't kill me, dummy. I have to give, lay down my own life. Only God has life blood now, and only God has enough life blood. So the sacrifice must be acceptable as a substitute for many. That's in our, that's in our communion service, right? This is my blood shed for many for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. So what's the obvious question? How many is many? Could Adam have sacrificed himself for the, the people in this auditorium? No. Doesn't have enough blood. Who but God would have enough life blood? So re-ask the question. Who would want there to be a period of time when Jesus Christ had somehow emptied himself of his infinity and didn't have enough life blood? And didn't know who he was doing or who he was or what he was doing. I got a clueless guy. That's what they want. There was a period of time when Christ was completely without any ability to sacrifice for our sins. If Jesus Christ is finite, what then is the impact on salvation? And they're going to tell you that Jesus Christ was finite. He emptied his infinity and he didn't have enough life blood because he's no longer infinite. As if that's even possible, by the way. It's just ridiculous. I can't even believe I say it to give it any kind of credibility. They say that Jesus Christ was finite for a period of time. Period of time is a redundancy. But what's the motive for this thinking? Who wants Jesus Christ to be finite? Everybody. Everybody. I mean, they all do. It starts with Satan. And they all want him to be finite. They all want him to be ignorant. If Jesus Christ is finite, do we have any salvation? If salvation is vulnerable for a period of time, in doubt for a period of time, uh, then we got problems, don't we? There were, that means that there was a time that Jesus Christ was no longer infinite, no longer omniscient, no longer omnipotent, no longer omnipresent, no longer had life blood, was no longer able uh, to be the sa sacrifice, and we had no salvation. And, and by the way, if salvation is vulnerable, salvation is interchangeable with the name Yeshua, right? It's his name. You have Christ himself, infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, as vulnerable to what? Absolutely right. He said sin. He's vulnerable to sin. Then the very 
fact that he's vulnerable to sin means he cannot be the sacrifice. And no one is saved. Who wants this to be true? Who says this? While you consider that, let's ask some more questions. These are fun. I got this. What about infancy mean and pain? I get questions about uh, Kathy from California, Philippe from Canada. Both of them sent me questions about infancy and pain. And it's really the same subject that we're just talking about, as you'll see. Now, both Kathy and Philippe simultaneously asked about infancy and pain. Uh, it seems that Kathy and Philippe have come across uh, uh, our esteemed group of Christian scholars who also um, are certain that uh, deity and infancy are likewise incompatible. In other words, it's impossible for God to be God and inside of an infant. It's impossible. Incompatible. It does follow their, their thinking that I just covered, that Christ is subject to time. Let me just say this. Have no position that makes Jesus Christ subject to time. Never do it. The fact that you have him relearning something, as Boris pointed out so quickly. Doesn't that intimidate you people out there on the internet? You cannot make Jesus Christ subject to time. can't do it and be doctrinally sound. You do it, it's blasphemy. Stop doing it. But these esteemed scholars, they also think that the infancy process negates, not only is it incompatible, but it negates the Godhood of Christ. Now, why would somebody conclude that? And keep in mind, this is the mystery of godliness. And that's what Paul calls it. The mystery. Who can understand this? It's a mystery. But they say, well, we got it. We got it. Nothing to learn here. Step aside. I've got it. Christ is an infant. And that means that he cannot be God while he's an infant. It negates his deity. God cannot be God and an infant simultaneously because I can't figure it out. Because you're an idiot, you have decided that it can't be so. That, by the way, www.godhatesamputees.com all over again, isn't it? I never saw God put a limb on somebody, therefore it, it depends on me seeing it. I can't figure out the deity of Christ as an infant, therefore it can't be true. It's the same ridiculous statement. <sighs> Beware of those who have claimed to solve the mystery of godliness, the incarnation, or the triune nature of God for that matter. Why do people assume the triune nature of the mystery of godliness is going to be easy? Oh, I got it. I spent half an hour on it. Piece of cake. The error that is made with the aspect of infancy, the childhood of Jesus Christ, if you will, the second person of the triune godhood adding humanity and hiding himself in it. See, that's the taking off of the robe. He took off his robe. Why did he take off his robe? Some people wouldn't know it was him. He put himself into humanity and he went through the infancy process and the growing process. And he looked like a man, a small Jewish man. Look at Samson now for the typology. Samson did not look like Lou Ferrigno. He looked like uh, Wally Cox. That, that helps you. Little tiny man. Jewish man. Christ, same thing. People didn't know this was God. He walked among us, and 
They did not know it was him, John 1, right? The error that is most often made about this is that Christ revealing himself to be God in the flesh is mistaken to be growing or becoming God or re-becoming God. In other words, they don't understand revealing himself to be God and be growing or becoming God. Um, that re-becoming God nonsense or growing nonsense. Remember, God never describes us as something. What does he never describe us as? Never, never, never does he describe you as something. What? He never describes you as a body. He always describes you as a living soul, a spirit, your mind. You're never described on the basis of physical properties. We are always called a living soul, never called a body. Again, this is the mind-brain or the mind-body. The mental properties contrasted with the physical properties. Do not make the mistake of assigning self-identity or personhood to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not Christ. Just like the body of Supper Dave or Jane or Bonnie or Bill is not Jane, Bonnie, Bill or Supper Dave. You are not your body. So people are going, they're looking at the body, and it's a baby, an infant child, and they go, that's Christ. No, that's the humanity of Christ. That is him taking his robe off. Where is he? Where he always is. We have the omnipresence of Christ in concert with the physical body. How does that work? Paul calls it a mystery. He's omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient simultaneously while being an infant. It's a mystery. He's God. And he's revealing himself. He is not growing. The mind, his mind is infinite. It is already, it, it never grows. It can't grow. It's impossible for an infinite mind to grow. It's also impossible for an infinite mind to shrink. It's impossible. Our self is not our body. Our self, our personhood, is our mind, our soul, and our spirit. The body is a machine that reveals ourself. That's the purpose of the body, is to reveal the mind. The, our self is spiritual and not physical. Jesus Christ is the invisible God, and he is making himself visible. He's revealing himself to us. He's using a physical human body that has no sin, that has living blood and flesh, that is a perfect sacrifice. The mind of God is in that infant body and is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. And, and you think it's a baby. And, the, and you think because you can't figure out that it's God, that it must not, it's a baby. Because you can't figure it out, you have decided that Christ had to relearn to become God. Oh, uh, I have to be careful that I don't use the word crap. <laughs> the mind of God is in that infant body and is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. We may not see it. It may not be obvious to us. Yeah, we, had we been there, may have only seen a baby. That's too bad for us. But just because we are ignorant, our ignorant has, ignorance has no effect on his deity. Uh, duh. 
Is it your position that you have to recognize his deity for it to be there? Well, it is for these guys. How arrogant is that? You see, there are basic questions that every Christian must work himself through or should work himself through. Why does God hide himself? Because he did. He took his robe off, put on humanity and hid. And people looked at him all the time and thought it was a baby, thought it was a child. He made it very clear, by the way, it wasn't a child. A bunch of people figured out, wait a minute, that's not a child. Centurion said, wait a minute, that's not a normal person. They figured it out. That's God. A lot of people think it's a baby. Put them in the dumb column. Don't be there. But why does God hide himself? Christ, why does Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, hide himself? Why does Jesus Christ pray, pray aloud? Why does he pray aloud? He doesn't need to be aloud. Who's the aloud for? It's for us. Start with those two. Answer those. See the revealing of himself and you'll get yourself through it. Finally, feeling pain really fast. Did Christ feel pain? People ask me that all the time. What is feeling pain? See, I'm asked this quite often. It's the same as the infant question. I hope you got that. I could stop right here. It's the same as the infant question. But I'll help you out. Start by asking this. Where is pain felt? What is pain? Is pain a mental property or a physical property? Do you see that this is a mind-body issue as well, just like infancy? Does God, does Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, does the mind of Christ have authority over his body? Yes or no? Everybody answer, yeah. Are there people who can control their feeling of pain? Are there people who have medical conditions where they feel no pain? Are there people who feel pain in missing limbs? What is pain? Is pain a physical property or a mental property? Now, what does pain do? What's the purpose of pain? We'll run out of time. Try to figure out how God himself dealt with pain. What is the difference between pain and touch? I touch that. Is that pain? I define it as not pain. Is it just a very low level of pain? And pain is a very high level of touch. Okay? Do you suppose that pain had authority over Jesus Christ? Because if I have pain, I am overcome by pain. I I walked down the stairs the other day to help Christopher, and I did not make the final three steps and landed on my right knee, much like Bill and the airplane crash. On the, what river was that again? The Cuscoquim River. Uh, I just went bam right on that, right on the patella, uh, and I just blasted it and got up and said, "Wow, that was cool." And I was overcome by it this morning. Did pain overcome Christ? Can pain overcome Christ? What is running his body? His mind is. The body is just a machine. Does the machine overwhelm his mind? Is it possible? If he, if he feels pain, he has to do what? Choose to do it. His will is involved when he has pain. My will is not involved. My idiocy is involved a lot. I fall down. 
But do not anthropomorphize this. Don't put your understanding of pain on him. Do not make your baby the same as that baby. Uh, There's a big difference. Let's rise and be dismissed. Next week we'll battle through some of this again and then go back to uh, our subject.